0: So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, hear the word of the Lord this Christmas morning. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold... When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As far, as the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon it. Gracious Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And Lord, this morning as we reflect on the sending of your son, the birth of your son, the unique and miraculous way which it came about, may we remember your goodness to us and your faithfulness. You do all things well. And yet, Lord, as we seek to peer into the mystery, help us to grow in wonder and amazement at it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the ancient prophecies that the Israelites had been waiting on and anticipating for centuries after century, So I always remind my kids, as long as you waited to open your presents this year, you did not wait as long as the Israelites waited for the promises to become fulfilled. Well, one of those promises that they waited on for centuries was the promise of comfort from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. If you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, you know this one as it's the very first lines that are sung in Handel's Messiah. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So as eagerly as a child anticipates opening those presents, God's people were anticipating the unfolding fulfillment of God's promise of comfort to them. Now, comfort is a concept that we're familiar with because it's something that as human beings we are universally drawn to. When it's cold we love that we can have the comfort of a warm fire. When it's hot and humid, especially here in Florida, we love the comfort of air conditioning. When we want to sit down and relax, we love the comfort of our favorite chair with a good book. When we want a good night's sleep, we have that pillow, that blanket, that mattress that gives us that comfortable night of sleep. Well, this kind of comfort speaks to only one kind, and it's physical comfort. It's a kind of comfort that, We're pretty easy about, we're pretty familiar with because it's a comfort that we have a great deal of control over. Adjust the thermostat, get a good lazy boy and have a sleep number mattress. That's all you need for this kind of comfort. But that's not the kind of comfort that Isaiah is speaking about. There's one that's much more serious and much more significant. And it's a comfort that we long for. We long for a spiritual comfort. A comfort that comes to give us comfort in the midst of the presence and effects and consequences of sin in us and in our world. And you've probably felt this longing for this kind of comfort. We long for comfort from the shame of a guilty conscience or the grief of a painful loss that's hard to get over or the scars of a harmful past that we can't forget or the burden of an enduring trial that we just can't seem to get through. In those moments, we long for comfort that we don't have control over. It's not as easy as going and turning a thermostat, finding a comfortable chair, getting the right sleep number mattress. And that's what makes this comfort so serious and significant and yet hard to come by because it's a comfort that must be provided for us. It must be given to us. It's something that we have to receive, not something that we can conjure up on our own. And it's that comfort that the Christmas story is all about because the God who made the promise of comfort in Isaiah 40 also made the promise of this in Isaiah 9:6. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. So what I want to look at this morning in Matthew 1 is how God's promise of comfort is fulfilled in God's giving of his son, in the baby born in Bethlehem that we've been singing about. So in Matthew 1, what we're going to see is that the comfort that God promised is found in the new beginning of, that the birth of this child in Bethlehem brings to us. It's no coincidence that the Gospel of Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. When we turn the page from the Old to the New, the first book that greets us is Matthew. And more than any other book, Matthew's mission is to show that everything we've just read, everything we kind of turned the page from in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ that Jesus is the crescendo of the Old Testament. He's the resolution of all its unresolved themes and threads. And we see this sometimes in explicit ways. So look at verse 22 and 23. You want to know that Jesus' fulfillment? Matthew sometimes puts it right there in flashing the end lights. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel. You don't have to guess. The prophecy has been fulfilled right there. Isaiah 7 is fulfilled in Matthew 1, 23. But also, Matthew makes connections to the Old Testament in much more subtle ways sometimes. You can think of it like a scavenger hunt. So kids, if you've ever been on a scavenger hunt, the the whole point of a scavenger hunt is to give you clues, but clues that you have to decipher a little bit, clues that make you think. So for example, if I was gonna do a scavenger hunt for my kids, I would say, go to the banyan tree and turn to the clocks three. And what they would think is, okay, well, I got to go to the banyan tree, which is across the street, and I have to face three o'clock and then I have to walk forward. So it's a little more subtle, but you just know enough to look and see, okay, this is what he's talking about. Well, sometimes Matthew drops little clues that are almost like riddles pointing us back to the Old Testament and we're meant to go and look there and draw the connection. And the reason I bring up that kind of scavenger hunt illustration is, is because we get some of those clues in our passage. So I'm I'm gonna give you a hint. If you look at verse 18, it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Well, the word for birth is literally the word Genesis. So you could read it like this. Now the Genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So this word means beginning, beginning of existence, of origins, of life. And it's the title of the first book, of the first part of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And this isn't the first time that Matthew has used this term in his gospel. In fact, he opens the very first verse of his book with this statement, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. So what is Matthew doing? What is the meaning of this Old Testament clue that points us back to the beginning of the book of Genesis? Well, we're meant to see that the God who brought about the first beginning, the beginning of beginnings at creation has come to bring about a new beginning in the birth of his son. Just as God spoke using his word to bring light out of darkness, to bring something out of nothing, God has sent his son, the word made flesh, to dwell among us, to bring about a new beginning, to speak light into the spiritual darkness, the spiritual emptiness of this world, so that we can have the comfort of a new beginning. And this connection, this new beginning in Christ is further reinforced because there's two references to the Holy Spirit in Matthew 1. At the end of verse 18, we read, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then look at the end of verse 20. The angelic messenger says to Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1-2, before kind of the order comes out of creation, before order is brought out of chaos, it says the Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. Well, now what do we have here in the new beginning? We have the spirit of God coming over that empty womb of Mary and filling it with life, divine life, because this birth is going to bring about a new beginning. He's going to make all things new. And there's a subtle irony here in this point. Joseph has a major dilemma in this text. At this point, Joseph and Mary have not yet formally said their I do. They've not formally entered into the covenant of marriage, but they're as good as married because they've been legally pledged to one another. They've been betrothed. Now, betrothal for them was much more uh, significant than our engagement. Because when you're betrothed, money gets exchanged to the father. You go go to build that home that you're gonna have for your family. So you're, you're really putting a lot into this. And so there's kind of a legal pledge that's been made. And yet... Mary's miraculous pregnancy gets to a point where it's quite obvious that she is with child. Okay, you know that stage where there's someone you see maybe in church and you think, I wonder if they're pregnant, but I know I shouldn't say something because if I'm wrong, I'm in really big trouble. But then it gets to that point where like, okay, I can definitely tell they're pregnant, congratulations, and you're not worried about eating your words. Well, Mary's past that point. It's clear that she's pregnant. Joseph knows this, and so he logically concludes that she's been unfaithful to him. And so he determines that he's going to divorce her. He's going to set aside the marriage before it ever began. Well, here's the irony. What Joseph thought was the sign of the end of his marriage turns out to be the sign of the new beginning of all things, of everything, that God is making all things new. This is a turn of events for Joseph. What he thought was kind of this dark cloud of pain and probably shame even for him and broken hardness for his relationship with Mary, turns out to be the first glimpse of a sunrise, of a new beginning. A new age is dawning in this birth. And so comfort is found in the birth of our Savior because his birth signals the genesis of a new beginning. The new beginning Christ brings is like watching a desert sunrise. If you've ever been in the desert when the sun has risen, you know that it happens slowly and progressively and beautifully. That slowly but surely, the sun starts to peek up over the horizon and you see off in the distant desert plain and mountains that the light of the sun is kind of slowly creeping up and the darkness is getting kind of further and further and further pushed back. And suddenly, over time, that whole desert area is filled with the light of the sun and there's no more darkness, there's no more shadow anymore. Well, we live between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We live between the time of the dawning of the sun and the whole desert being filled with the light of a new day. We know that there is much darkness left to be dispelled, but take comfort, the sun of a new beginning has dawned and has invaded the darkness of this world and the darkness cannot overcome it. Well, secondly, we see in our text that the comfort that God promised is found in knowing the two names that are given to this child. So in this birth narrative, Matthew goes out of his way to highlight and define for us two of the names that are given to this child, two of the names that tell us who this child really is. Now, this is a big deal for a Jewish audience that Matthew's primarily writing to, because names meant everything to them. Think about what your parents went through to name you or what you went to name your kids. It's generally, maybe it's a family name. Maybe you had a list of from the internet and you just found one that worked because you wanted to stop fighting about it or you know maybe there was something a little bit more significant than that but for the jews names and titles were a memorial and a prophecy to a degree that in the old testament when you see people getting names receiving names it was either memorializing something or even a foreshadowing a prophetic anticipation of something so some names are meant to memorialize something like for example After Cain kills Abel, God gives Seth to Eve. Well, the Hebrew word behind Seth's name means a replacement or a consolation because God gave Seth to Eve to console her for the loss of her son Abel. But some names point forward. Some names have in them a miniature story of what their life is going to be, what role they have in God's purpose and plan. And we see this especially when God changes someone's name. So think of Abram. To Abraham, When God renames Abraham, he gives him a name which means the father of a multitude because he is gonna be the one through whom the blessing to all nations come. Well, we have two names and titles of Jesus in our passage. The first name, the one we're most familiar with in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, this is a name we're, we're very familiar with that we almost are overly familiar with that we don't understand the significance of this name being placed on this child. Because for the Israelites, it pointed them back to the Old Testament, to Joshua. The Hebrew name for Joshua is the same as the New Testament name, Jesus, Yeshua. And it's one that means the Lord saves or the Lord delivers. And think of Joshua and his story. It was not Moses who led the people into the promised land. It was Joshua. Moses was not able to enter the land. It was, he had to pass the torch onto Joshua who then takes the people into the land of promise, into that place flowing with milk and honey that leads them to dispel the enemies that are there. And he he brings them a type of rest and comfort where they have their own place, where God's people are in God's place enjoying God's presence. That's kind of the story of Joshua. And we're meant to think of this when we hear the name Jesus placed on this child. It signals for us the purpose for which he came, a greater deliverance than Joshua brought. Joshua brought a temporary physical deliverance that didn't last very long and didn't ultimately go very well. And yet, look at the second half of verse 21. Why is Jesus given this name? For he will save his people from their sins. I think it's so important at Christmas time to not separate out and isolate one part of Jesus' life from the rest. They're all interconnected. They're all designed to flow together in a unified story. Never separate the cradle from the cross. Jesus was born with a mission and a purpose. Jesus didn't just come to be born so that we could have nativity scenes and cool Hallmark cards. He came for a purpose. His earthly life starts, yes, with frailty and humility, a baby lying in a manger, a feeding trough. But his earthly life ends in an even deeper display of frailty and humility, as he is nailed to the shameful cross for our sins. He was born in the uncomfortable lodging of a manger and he died having to endure the agonizing death of a cross so that we could have the comfort of God's forgiveness. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He takes our sins and he removes them as far as the East is from the West. He takes all the legal demands that could be brought against us and he sets them aside, nailing them to the cross. His name is Jesus, which means that he is for us, God for us. Well, he also has a second name in our passage, and it's found in the second half of verse 23. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. One of the burning questions for the Old Testament saints who were waiting and waiting and waiting was how long, O Lord? When will you restore to us all the things that we had under the time of David and Solomon. How long, O Lord, will you forsake us and leave us in this place where we're spiritually destitute? And that phrase, how long, O Lord, is kind of the minor key melody that runs throughout the second part of the Old Testament because everyone can look back and see in the days of David and Solomon the height of this kingdom, the the grandeur of what God had promised to them displayed in a picture and yet it's been gone (laughs) since then. It's just crumbled. They've never had it. In fact, When they're restored, during the days of Nehemiah, Nehemiah leads them to rebuild the the walls of the city, to rebuild the temple, and yet half of the people cry and weep aloud. Why did the people during Nehemiah's day cry and weep, even though the walls have been rebuilt, the temple's been rebuilt? It's because they knew that the presence of God wasn't there. It didn't fill the temple like it had in Exodus, like in the days of Solomon. They knew that that the former glory of the kingdom had not yet been restored. They were waiting for God to return, his presence to come amongst them once again. And so in the birth of Jesus, their cry for God's presence to be restored to them, their longing for his return has now been answered because Jesus is also Emmanuel. And in this promise of the son, or in the name of the son, which gives us a promise that God is with us, we can be reminded in the midst of the hardships and trials and struggles of this world, that we can hold on to an objective historical comfort because Jesus was born as a real baby in a real place and he has a real name, Emmanuel, God with us. And the reason I think this is so important is so often our subjective feelings about God overrule the objective truths that God has given us, that we, we feel forsaken, we feel as if our sins haven't been forgiven, we feel as if God is distant from us And yet, we need to look and remember that God is not a distant God. He has not left us to ourselves. God is Emmanuel, God with us. He sent his son as a way of declaring, I am here, I am near, I am not far off. So we have two names. Jesus, God for us, he will save us from our sins, and Emmanuel, God with us. He is near to us. Well, finally, we see in our text that the comfort that God promised is found in understanding the two natures of this child born in Bethlehem. So the two names and now the two natures. And in this point, we begin to swim in the deep end of the theological pool. But it's a part of the theological pool that we all need to learn to swim in because in this part of the pool, there are some rich truths that we need to uncover. We see in the two natures of Christ some of the glorious depths of the person and work of Christ. So as Matthew's gospel unfolds. We're given various pieces of a puzzle of Jesus' identity that we're supposed to put together so we can get a fuller, grander, more glorious picture of who is Jesus. In fact, one of the questions that runs throughout Matthew's gospel is asked by Jesus in Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? And so Matthew keeps leaving these little pearls of Jesus' person and his work to show us who he really is. And yet, when you take some of these pieces and try to fit them together, it's like working with a real puzzle. It's hard to tell how the pieces exactly fit together properly. For example, how is Jesus, the son of Joseph, yet technically, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary? How is it that a baby lying in a manger can be the one who has authority to forgive people of their sins? God alone has authority to forgive sins. How is it that a baby, can also at the same time be Emmanuel, God with us. And then as the gospel goes on, how can Jesus be hungry in Matthew 4, then feed the multitudes in Matthew 12? How can Jesus be asleep in a boat and then wake up and a moment later cause a storm to cease with a word? Well, as early members of the church studied and thought about and wrestled with these puzzle pieces, a great debate was ignited regarding two questions. Is Jesus fully God and is Jesus fully man? And there's no exaggeration to say that much ink and much blood was spilt, answering and seeking to defend these questions. In fact, there's quite a humorous story regarding St. Nicholas of Myra. This is the same St. Nick who the legend of Santa Claus developed from. This was the St. Nicholas who would go around to poor houses and he would through the window, drop presents in kind of their fireplace area, fire kind of thing area, to spread the good news. Well, this Saint Nick, the the real one, was a participant in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. This was a church council that was convened by Emperor Constantine, and the issue on the floor were the views of a man named Arius, who was teaching that Jesus was not co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. Arius taught that Jesus was the first ever greatest created being, but he was a created being nonetheless. He did not share with the Father eternality and divinity. And so this was a great question. And so at the council, Arius was speaking on the floor against the full deity of Jesus Christ. And St. Nicholas became so furious that he got up out of his chair, walked up over to Arius, and punched him in the face in front of the whole council. Now this is a Saint Nick I can get behind. Okay. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> there was a uh, someone sent me a meme the other day, and it was a picture of Saint Nick, and it said, "I'm here to give presents and punch heretics, and I'm all out of presents." So I thought <laughs> uh, that that spread Christmas cheer to my heart. So now, why would Jolly Old Saint Nick punch Arius in the face? Because he knew. That in answering these questions, is Jesus fully God? Is Jesus fully man? The very gospel was at stake. Our salvation was at stake. Is Jesus fully God? Is he fully man? The answer is a resounding yes. Absolutely. Jesus is the only begotten son of God, begotten of the father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father. He's fully God. Yet at the same time, the eternal Son of God took upon himself a true human nature and became like us in every way, yet without sin. He's fully man. Now, we cannot exhaustively explain this brain-bending truth, but we must confess it and we must embrace it because the truth of the gospel, the comfort of the gospel, hangs on him being fully God and fully man. How does the gospel hang on that mystery? Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man because the debt of sin was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. Jesus had to take on flesh so that he could represent the one who owed the debt and yet could not pay it. And so he could represent the one who could pay to the debt, though he did not owe it. C.S. Lewis says in mere Christianity, the son of God became man so that men could become sons of God. It's a mystery that we'll never be able to exhaustively explain, but it's one we must confess and celebrate and wonder at. Just this morning, I was my daughter was listening to The Last Battle in the Narnia series, and because I love Narnia, I have to use an illustration from there. There's one scene where they go into the stable at the end of the book and they find out that the stable actually brings them into the true Narnia, this great, expanding, wonderful world. And they're shocked that a stable could contain this world. And then one of the characters, I forget which one it was, said, well, once in our world, a stable contains something bigger than our whole world. And he's talking about Christ. Christ the one who's fully God, fully man, was contained in a stable and he's bigger than the whole world and yet he was contained in a little feeding trough. And yet when we confess this mystery, I don't think we can do any better than St. Augustine's Christmas poem from hundreds, thousands of years ago. He said this, the maker of man became man, that he the sustainer might be nourished by his mother's milk, that he the bread might hunger, that he the fountain might thirst, that he the light thirst, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied by his journey, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust, that he, the prince of peace, might be scourged with whips, that he, the foundation, might be suspended on a wooden cross, that he, the healer, might be wounded, and that he, the life, might die to endure these and similar indignities for us, to free us unworthy creatures, he who existed as the son of God before all ages, without a beginning, deigned to become the son of man in these recent years. He submitted to such great evils for our sake, and yet he had done no evil so that we could be the recipients of so much good from his hands that we had done nothing to merit these benefits. Great is the mystery of Christmas. Great is the comfort found in the child born in Bethlehem. His birth provides the comfort of a new beginning. His name provides the comfort of knowing that God is for us and God is with us. And his two natures, his identity, fully God, fully man, provides the comforts of knowing that he alone can save us. He can represent us and he can reconcile us to the Father. That's the wonder of Christmas. Let's pray.